Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How's it going, Zofia? Yeah, great. Great to be on. Thank you for joining us. You're, you're joining from London, as usual, I assume? Mm-hmm. From London. Is it? What's it like in London right now? Because in New York, it is has been so beautiful the last couple of days. It's been okay. Um, I think it's typical kind of April showers, but um, most of the time it's been quite sunny, which is nice. That That is good. I'm glad to be getting into some warmer months, and we've got some exciting stuff to talk about today. We're going to do a dive into LVMH's earnings, which had some pretty interesting stuff about how it was affected by luxury spending in China. Um, we'll also talk about how LVMH was impacted by the protests in France right now. Um, then we'll talk about the coming slowdown in the luxury watch market, which is such an interesting world to me and actually has a little overlap with what we're going to talk about with LVMH. And then finally, we'll talk about this Lacoste-Netflix partnership that came out last week, or this week, I mean, which I thought was kind of interesting. So we'll do that one last. Um, but let's start with LVMH. So they had their earnings this week. LVMH is crazy to me. They They're their revenue grew another 17% last quarter. It like doubled all the analyst expectations. They made like $23 billion in three months or something. That company is insane. I feel like they are just so dominant in luxury and fashion um, and are always like, you know, they're like making, what are they more, valued at more than $400 billion or something like that? Something crazy. Um, anyway, they attributed the high growth last quarter to the sharp return of China. And I feel like on this podcast, we've talked a couple of times about how China, obviously, in the long run is still a super lucrative, valuable, promising luxury market. But in the short term was kind of, you know, up in the air. Some brands were not seeing as much growth as they were expecting. It felt a little like un uneasy what exactly was going to happen. This was like right after they dropped their COVID restrictions, all that stuff. Um, but LVMH said that last quarter, China really came back for them. Um, sales in Asia grew 14% last quarter, and they're saying that China is going to drive big growth throughout the rest of the year. Um, that was the the big thing that jumped out at me immediately. Zofia, what, what else did you see from what LVMH talked about that was notable to you? Yeah, so I think obviously the China return is the main thing for them. Um, the During the earnings call, they were talking about how there is still a kind of majority market, you know, onshore for them. So within mainland China, um, and then a smaller, much kind of like four to one ratio um, of customers kind of outside of mainland China who still kind of are shopping there. Um, so I think that that's quite a big but for me, um, obviously, strong performance for high jewelry across like Tiffany's and Bulgari. That was a really big thing. Still relentless popularity of um, Yves Saint Laurent. Um, and I think it was interesting. They said that it was due to the the contro tight control of their image and distribution, um, which I thought was quite funny. And then I had some questions around like what is happening with Marc Jacobs right now, just because it felt like there was nothing really mentioned um, on the call. Um, and then some of the questions were quite interesting as well, surrounding like how LVMH is doing well with like store density and like the sales compared to like a lot of places that are like renovating, building out their retail presence, but a lot of different topics to kind of jump into. Yeah, definitely. And and it does feel like, I know uh, Louis Vuitton is their um, 
cash cow kind of. I, I forget the exact percentage, but it's a huge chunk of the whole group's revenue is just Louis Vuitton. Um, and then a couple other big brands like Dior. But I, it kind of feels like there are some brands um, in the portfolio who kind of are just, you know, swimming along and being towed by the giant tugboat that is Louis Vuitton. That brand is so successful that I feel like it can kind of make up for shortcomings elsewhere. Speaking of that, one thing that I thought was notable was even though Asia, sales in Asia and especially China were growing, um, the U.S. was a little slower. It still grew, but just slower than other markets. Um, I think they said 8% um, in the U.S. last quarter, which was ahead of analyst expectation. But LVMH said on the report that that was mostly driven by lower price point stuff, so like Sephora and other things, um, and that overall luxury spending in the U.S. is going to slow down a little bit. So it's a little bit flipping with China. Um and we'll we'll talk about this more in the the next topic, which is Swiss watches, because there's a little bit of a similar trend there. But it does feel like the the narrative has been that luxury is insulated from a lot of economic concerns and that you know turmoil going on uh, because the people who are buying luxury brands just you know are not the ones getting laid off or having their salaries cut or whatever. But it feels like even now. Or, or now even those people are feeling at least a little bit of downward pressure. I'm sure a lot of luxury companies are going to survive just fine, but um, they're starting to feel some sort of, you know, impact from from how that's been changing. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. I think that there's always going to be some kind of an impact. It's just depending on which categories um, and which brands that, you know, customers go to. Yeah, um, and like I said, I still think Louis Vuitton is going to be huge. They've got uh, Pharrell, you know, just joined, and he's got his first collection coming out later this year. I'm sure that's going to be huge for them. Bernard Arnault is the richest man in the world. Like, they're going to be fine. Um, and speaking of that, you you just tipped me off to this this morning, but there, the protests in France, which I believe are uh, in regard to Emmanuel Macron raising the retirement age, led to the storming of the LVMH Capitol. Was was that this morning or last night when this happened? I think it was this morning. Yeah, the protesters forced their way into the headquarters at LVMH, which funnily enough, I think I was at the LVMH design competition. So I was actually in the building um, back during Paris Fashion Week. And they've just basically stormed that whole entrance. Yeah, the, the kind of reform talks broke down um, last week. On Wednesday, so I think the con- the protests have just basically continued since then um, because of that raise in retirement age from 62 to 64. I actually saw a very funny video around someone explaining um, a tour of Paris's croissants during the protests on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of people are treating it with the typical kind of... <laughs> lighter touch that Paris is known for the protests and it should be affecting everyone. Yeah. And there was a great quote um, from one of the union leaders, uh, you know, joining the protests about uh, if Macron wants to find money, you know, for for funding the government, he should look here, like referring to the LVMH headquarters, which you're not (laughs) wrong. Like I said, Arnaud's the richest man in the world. And then they're like, but we can squeeze two more years out of like random working people. Kind of an interesting situation there. Um, Let's move on, though, and talk about our second topic, which, like I said, has a little bit of overlap. So I've covered a good amount of um, the Swiss watch, luxury watch industry in the last year, and 
there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So there's been some incredible growth this year in that sector. Um, the Swiss watch industry, which is, you know, Patek Philippe, Rolex, uh, Audemars, Piguet, those kinds of brands. Um, they sold like $25 billion during the pandemic uh, worth of watches. So much demand for Omega, Rolex, all that. But Bloomberg had a great report where they talked to the heads of a couple of these brands who are saying, despite all of the success and all the buzz about Swiss watches, they're all kind of expecting a little bit of slowdown in the future. A lot of them were relying on the growth of consumption in China, which was the top importer of Swiss watches uh, for a couple of years until I think 2021. Um, and now it's the US. And now they're expecting, you know, some of that demand is going to soften, um, similar to LVMH, where it's like, it's not going to be disastrous. They're still going to be making, you know, they're still going to be raking in money, but you're definitely going to see a decline there. Um, anyway, I've got more thoughts, but uh, let me throw it to you, Zofia. What do you, what do you think is going on in this sector? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for so long, the, the kind of demand has completely outstripped, um, like the supply. And, you know, for luxury watches, it was almost like such a key investment category over the last couple of years. Like people would go to that instead of investing in other goods because it was, you know, something that was stable. It would rise in value. Um, there's a lot of kind of those value-tied um, goods that have just been making the rounds like, you know, Hermes Birkins, but watches mainly. And I think that collector culture has also appealed to a lot of different subgroups that have come up over the last couple of years. Um, in my kind of particular interest, I'd say like among the Web3 community, that's um, a really big thing. Like collectibles are just where the attention's at. And maybe, you know, right now that demand is slowing. Those groups either have enough of those watches um, that they're no longer interested, or perhaps, you know, there's some recession-ish fears um, that are affecting them and whether they're keen to buy new goods. Yeah, you, you raise a really good point about um, a lot of these brands, the demand is so much higher than the supply. I mean, Rolex, um, I think, is one of the more productive of these brands in terms of how many watches they make. But some of them, some of the big Swiss watch brands make like under 100,000 watches a year, um, which is insane for how many, you know, some of them are under 50,000. Um, it's insane for how much demand there is that they, and that's like a strategic thing. They intentionally keep the supply low. Um, but I do think that that means they can weather a little bit of a slowdown. It's not that bad. Like if the wait list if you know, to get a Rolex is two months instead of three months, it's, I don't think that's a huge deal for their, for, for what they, um, you know, their bottom line. The people I think might be most affected by this though, are the secondhand watch marketplaces. So I wrote uh, a couple months ago about Chrono 24, who last year they got like, there was a huge watch boom. Um, they're, they're a secondhand marketplace. I think they're based in Germany. Um, but there was a huge watch boom. They got like $100 million in funding. They hired 100 people, um, you know, staffed up, staffed up really big. And then just a couple of months ago, they had to lay off 65 people. Um, and we're talking about slowing down and how the market was more volatile than they expected. It's a little confusing why exactly this happened. But if I, if I have it right... And it took some talking to a couple of experts to kind of like tease out why this was happening because it seemed like back then the the uh, you know three months ago maybe the demand still seemed really high. I was confused why they were suffering. Um, it, it seems like because of this watch boom, the demand was so high that a lot of collectors um, who had watches just sitting around were like, oh, now's the perfect time to sell it, and they kind of flooded the markets a little bit, the secondhand markets anyway. Um, 
And so the prices were fluctuating all over the place and that's not good for the marketplace who wants to like really have a good handle on how things are going to change gradually rather than like rapidly jumping and falling again. So I'm worried for them now if the demand softens, um, you know, the wait lists from the brands get shorter, it's going to be a lot easier to buy a watch directly from Rolex rather than having to go through a secondhand market. So like if you only have to wait a little bit of time, you might just wait and buy it straight from Rolex for cheaper rather than getting it more expensive from Chrono 24 or, you know, one of the watch box or whatever uh, and spend more, um, especially given what we've been talking about, people feeling pressure on their spending and maybe wanting to cut back. Um, if you want to just wait a month and get a watch for cheaper rather than get it right now for, with, you know, for more, I can see that impacting them. So that that's like a, a, an impact I think might happen. Um, I could be wrong. It's a very complicated world, watches. It's, it's crazy. Like you said, a lot of people kind of treat them almost like you'd buy a painting or a car or something. It's this, you know investment piece and there's a, you know, it goes in your financial portfolio. It's a little different than just buying like, you know, a jacket or something. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, for, for secondhand marketplace sellers, um, and for, you know, marketplaces in general, like they still have the, the attribute of, you know, vintage collections, rarer collections, past collections to go through, um, which, you know, arguably there's kind of far fewer items available than, you know, the 50,000 that are coming out from these major brands. So I do still think they they have some kind of cards they can play um, and potentially like alter the, the demand need. You know, there's various social media trends that also affect this. Um, but I think that, you know, they, they will be able to weather it out as long as they do keep it quite tight over the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And and one final thing on that is watches are also interesting because you could spend, you know, an ungodly amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a watch if you wanted to. But I think there's a lot of watch enthusiasts who are not necessarily the ultra wealthy, uh, like Rob Report kind of people that are just enthusiasts and maybe they're not buying anything else luxury, but they do splurge for a Rolex or something. Like I know a lot of people who have a Rolex who are not necessarily you know, Bernard Arnault, it, you know, it's a, it's a symbol of, I don't know, I don't even want to say wealth. Like, I think there's a, a, especially older generations, like you just got a Rolex when you were a certain age. So some, some people want to buy Rolexes, even if they're not that ultra rich client, that's totally insulated from a recession or whatever. Um, and so those people I think will, will be impacted. I'm not sure what percentage of the Swiss watch industry's audiences made up of those kinds of normal people who just reach a little bit for a Swiss watch and how many is the collector type who just, you know, buys one a week uh, without even thinking about it. Um, I do wonder also, my final thought is uh, Omega has this really like super popular moon swatch watch that they made with their parent company swatch that is an Omega watch, but it is at a more normal price point. It's not it's not as much as like a Speedmaster or whatever. Um, and that has been hugely successful for them. And I wonder if any of the other big Swiss brands will dabble at all with some sort of, you know, lower price point, but still premium kind of watch, or if they're all wary about that. I, I think before the Moonswatch came out, I probably would have thought that none of those brands would go for something like that because it's diluting the brand and all that stuff. But I don't think that's happened. Like people know that Omega is still a super fancy 
brand and that all their other watches are expensive. There's just one watch that you can get for, you know, I think a couple, 100, I think is how much it is. It's it's really not that expensive. And I don't think it's had a negative impact on the brand at all. So I could see some of the other brands maybe going that direction too. That's so interesting. I didn't even know they'd come up with that. Okay, let's talk about our final topic. This one is a little less uh, nitty gritty, but um, I thought it was fun. So uh, this week, Lacoste and Netflix had this uh, collaboration come out. The pieces in it are all pretty fun. They kind of recombine the, or they combine the Lacoste crocodile logo with different elements from Netflix shows. So there's a crocodile with the face like the monster from Stranger Things. And then there's one with a big powdered wig like from Bridgerton. The the shows that are referenced, so I'm gonna list them. There's eight Netflix shows that have elements in this collection. It's Stranger Things, Elite, Lupin, Money Heist, The Witcher, Sex Education, Shadow and Bone, and Bridgerton. I have heard of most of these shows, but I've only seen like two of them. Um, and I feel like Netflix, like I know they're popular or whatever. They have so much IP out there and they're clearly trying to leverage all of it and squeeze as much out of as much value out of all these, you know, these intellectual properties as they can. Um, I don't know. Do are you do you watch any of these shows? I've I've only seen Lupin and Stranger Things. And I've heard of most of the others. Yeah, I've heard I've heard of all of them. I, I've watched six out of the eight. So Stranger Things, Bridgerton, Lupin, Witcher, Sex Education, Shadow and Bone. Um, mm-hmm. which actually just came up with its second season. But I'm a bit of a, a series nerd, so I think that that probably yeah. appeals more to me. I would say it's quite interesting that they're coming out with this. I know that they obviously had um, that change in creative directorship, that they're moving to that collaborative model. And I kind of mm-hmm. feel like this is almost an extension of that. It's just like playing with the brand, trying to interest kind of new customers in you know a, a brand which... Honestly, I'm not quite sure who like buys a cost, if I'm perfectly mm-hmm. honest. I think that this kind of plays into popular culture a lot more than they would be able to without it. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, it almost makes me think of like uh, if you go to Target, they've got every IP you can think of on T-shirts. They've got all <laughs> of the Marvel superheroes have a T-shirt, Star Wars and all that stuff. And I almost think some of that stuff to me I mean, maybe there's people out there like it. I always think that that very IP-focused fashion, uh, I'm like, that is the opposite of timeless. Like, the, Unless it's like a vintage 1970s Star Wars t-shirt or something, I feel like that's going to be so dated. Like, if The Witcher gets canceled tomorrow, now you just like have this shirt with The Witcher <laughs> on it. And it's like, that show doesn't even exist anymore. Um, so I don't know, that that seems like not my kind of thing. Also, I noticed that there's no Squid Game and isn't that like their biggest show of all time? So that seems like sort of an omission there. Maybe they've got some other big plan for Squid Game. Um, but it should yeah. be mentioned that this is not Netflix's first foray into fashion or to merchandise. They have the Netflix shop concept. Um, they opened a store in Los Angeles in October that sells a lot of a lot of similar kind of stuff that's branded with you know different elements from their shows. But I I think this is one of their more, um, you know, more intense fashion efforts. It's like with a big brand like Lacoste. It's not just some some no-name T-shirt brand with the Stranger Things logo on it, um, although I'm sure they do stuff like that too, kind of like lower-level merchandising. It's definitely more of a bigger branding thing meant to get mm. kind of, you know, get press and, and get talked about on podcasts like this one. So that's working for them. Um, 
Yeah, what, what do you make of that, the fact that it's Lacoste? Like you said, you're not sure exactly who the customer is. I'm not sure I am either. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's weird because like Lacoste is actually doing ridiculously well, I would say, compared to a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It says that the um, the sales have grown 26% to more than 2.5 billion euros, which is about $2.69 um, last year. And they're looking for acquisition targets. So it's like whatever they're doing with the crocodile, it's working. Um, And they've really integrated it also like very heavily into all of their like Web3 projects. So it seems Mm. like they're running with the logo a lot more than they had previously. And maybe that, you know, even though technically logo mania is kind of done. And even during that LVMH call, like they were asked about quiet luxury and kind of de-branding. It obviously is working for them. I think someone from Netflix was saying that the products can be a powerful medium for storytelling um, and blending the worlds of fashion and entertainment. And I'm I'm very kind of keen on that idea where it's entertainment and consumer products are kind of mixing together. And, you know, you see that with like video games, like The Last of Us and like the series and all of the stuff that's coming out of that and Barbie, which is going to be like a big hit supposedly um so that's you know all of that kind of entertainment slash consumer goods is an interesting category maybe for brands yeah yeah i i speaking of um the last of us i actually got a promotional jacket from the from the premiere of the last of us it's a really really Really? nice car it's a really nice carhartt like work jacket um, it's thick, it's high quality, and I really like it, except it has a huge The Last of Us logo on like the badge kind of area. Ooh. And maybe it's just me, but I'm like, I want to cover that up. Like, I don't want to be an advertisement for <laughs> an IP. You know, I, I just want the nice jacket. Um, but I, I think for a lot of people, yeah, well, it's like, it's like sewed in there. Oh, it's no. not, it's like, yeah, it's it's in, it's embroidered, I think, is the term. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't really, I guess I could like pick the stitches out, but then I feel like you might just see the outline of The Last of Us. I was thinking of getting a patch over it. Um, but the thing is, I like The Last of Us. I like the game a lot. It was a little bit less into the show, but I still liked it. Um, I just don't want to wear a big IP logo on my body, you know, like, and, and it's funny you mentioned the quiet luxury debranding, like this Lacoste thing, it's not just like the polo with the little crocodile and the, on the breast with like the Stranger Things face on it. It's huge. It's the whole center of yeah. the shirt. <laughs> so it's very, it's very loud and very branded. Um, it, yeah, it, you're, you're right that that's totally like not where I think a lot of fashion is going right now. There's a lot of, less logo, less branding, less ostentatiousness. Um, and that's not the direction they went. But anyway, I do think that it's interesting that a lot of non-fashion brands use fashion and merch, like, you know, apparel uh, as brand building and IP control, kind of. You're like, well, if we want to strengthen this brand, we got to have T-shirts. We got to have backpacks and stuff. Um, and going with Lacoste feels a little bit all out to me. It's, you know, probably not necessary, but it does seem like, you know, Netflix wants to invest in it and, uh, you know, see some value in, in going with a bigger brand like Lacoste. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing to kind of note is that most of these shows are either European or American. Um, there's kind of none of the Asian shows that Netflix has been pioneering. So I'm wondering if that's mm-hmm. going to be something that's going to be focused 
on that market and will be available um, for that market specifically rather than these shows, which are definitely more, you know, European like Lupin or Bridgerton or American like Stranger Things and, I don't know, The Witcher. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And I also think, um, you know, I, I wrote a story a couple of months ago about that TV show, The Bear, which I really enjoyed. Mm. And uh, we talked to the their costume designers and we were talking about how the main character is like really stylish and his outfits were, you know, inspired a lot of people. But then I feel like a show like The Witcher, you know, you can't watch it and be like, I really want to wear that doublet or whatever, because it's <laughs> not, no, that's like not something anybody wears in real life. So uh, some of those brands or some of those shows, I can't believe I called them brands. Um, some of those shows I feel like are a little bit to me, maybe less of an intuitive fit with a fashion, you know, brand activation, mm. as opposed to, like I said, Squid Game has those iconic like green jumpsuits that I feel like would so easily translate. You could just sell those, you know, as is. And I'm sure that somebody does somewhere, um, but that feels like more of a natural fit. So I wonder, yeah, if they've got something else planned for that. Yeah, definitely. I think actually um, Malone Soulier's did a collabor- uh, collaboration with Bridgerton last year, and it was very much more into that, like, of the of the time, kind of very pretty little shoes with the color schemes and everything. And I, that felt very much more kind of fashion-y rather than merch-y. And maybe there's like a yeah. fine line between those two things. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Zofia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, always great to have you on. Uh, and uh, for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this episode. That really helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Friday we do the weekend review. It, usually it's me and Jill or me and Zofia. Sometimes we have other people uh, from the Glossy team co-host. And then every Wednesday, either Jill or I are interviewing cool industry insider people. So if you want to hear more of that, give us a subscribe and thanks for listening.